If you've not already done so, please do subscribe to The Leader through your podcast provider. It's the best way to make sure you get all of our news, commentary and analysis every day at 4pm. Now, from the Evening Standard in London, this is The Leader. Hi, I'm David Marsland. Coronavirus infections are now over 100,000 and the world's top doctors are demanding more action. This is not a drill. This is not the time to give up. This is a time for pulling out all the stops. The head of the World Health Organization says some countries aren't doing enough. We speak to Evening Standard columnist Philip Delvis-Broughton in New York. Also... I mean, they say in the media, um, pictures make you stop and words make you stay. Um, That picture made us all stop. Insider editor Lucy Pavia on that stunning photo of Harry and Meghan has one picture washed away the controversy. And... I'm Susanna Butter, the Evening Standard's common editor. I'm joined by features editor Phoebe Luckhurst to ask her, what is the point of International Women's Day? Taken from the Evening Standard's editorial column, this is The Leader. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comet. In a moment, how is the US reacting to the coronavirus crisis? Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season, when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. World Health Organization boss Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus has rarely criticised governments during the coronavirus spread. But as the number of infections crossed 100,000 globally, his tone changed. We're concerned that in some countries, the level of political commitment and the actions that demonstrate that commitment do not match the level of the threat we all face. In the UK, the government's chief scientific advisor, Sir Patrick Vallance, said an outbreak has clearly started. The Evening Standard's editorial columns joining appeals for the world to unite against COVID-19, but warns we must not rush our response. At least 20 companies and public bodies are racing to develop, test and approve a way of stopping the virus spreading. And already there's been encouraging early progress. Money shouldn't be an obstacle, given the huge potential economic and human cost of the disease. Any price that can begin to curtail the outbreak should be worth paying. The Chancellor shouldn't hold back in next week's budget. However, no amount of cash can rush a vaccine into use if the science doesn't say it's ready. Normally a process like this would take years. That's being accelerated, but it still might not be until next year until there's a vaccine. It's tempting to cut corners, but a vaccine that isn't safe would be far worse than no vaccine at all. What's reassuring is that our healthcare system will be ready to use it when it comes. 
Compare that to what's happening in the United States, a country with some of the best doctors and hospitals in the world, for those who can afford to pay. Its system is already struggling to cope with the need to test people who might have been infected. There don't seem to be enough testing kits. And it's not clear if patients who prove positive will face big hospital bills. Well, the Evening Standard columnist Philip Delvis Broughton is in New York and joins me now. Philip, what's the situation with these testing kits? Why aren't there enough? Well, I think simply because this hasn't been done before and there needs to be a kind of ramping up of supply. Um, more important than the testing kits themselves are two issues of even if we had enough, um, would they be effective in detecting the presence of the virus? How many people do you need to test? Uh, because I think one of the big issues is this thing lurks in people's bodies um, and it may be there in many more people than we think. It may not be. So there's huge amounts of uncertainty here and we're getting conflicting messages from the White House over that question of both availability and effectiveness. What are people in the States thinking about coronavirus right now and the government's response? Well, in a way, it's a, it's a case of suspended animation. Um, I'm here in New York, and this is a place where, you know, 8 million people stuck in, you know, what's largely an island, um, and a sense of, you know, extreme vulnerability if this thing were to hit. So you notice things like Purell dispensers being empty, um, you can't buy zinc lozenges at the pharmacy. Um, but you don't see a lot of masks. And I think a lot of people are basically waiting for a sign from uh, local, state, federal government that they need to panic. And so far, we haven't really had that. Um, you are seeing things like the stock market falls. So there is clearly a level of fear and anxiety. But what essentially the White House and I think state and local governments are trying to do is contain any kind of sense of panic and just say until this thing really breaks out, it hasn't. And otherwise, go about your business. So do you think the White House has been reasonably successful then at, at keeping control of the situation, at least in the public consciousness? I think there's a lot of ambiguity. I think a lot of people are, um, don't want to panic. They don't want uh, to go the sort of China route on this. Um, but clearly, you know, America is such a big country. You look at a place like Seattle, which I think has all but shut down uh, as a result of this because that's where the most cases have been discovered. Um, but you have large swathes of the country that are largely ineffective, And then you have a place like New York, which is waiting, waiting, waiting to see if something really nasty does appear. But right now it hasn't. So, you know, Trump is trying to walk, as indeed in many governments around the world, this balance between being responsible, uh, not appearing to panic, and yet taking this seriously. And this is the great fear of the Trump administration for a long time is... It's all well and good when everything's going well, but what about when something really serious happens? Is he going to have the capacity to do this? Is he going to have the attention span, um, the abilities, the people around him to deal with something like this? And I think people are still waiting and watching on this. Well, some of those people who might be able to help him would be working for the Centre for Disease Control. And he was supposed to be having a meeting with them, wasn't he? But he's had to cancel it. You would think that would be top of his list, meeting with the Centre for Disease Control. Yes, he has cancelled it. He's delegated authority to this to his vice president, Mike Pence. Whether this is a um, throw Mike Pence to the move, the wolves uh, answer the problem, or you know, creating some sort of distance between himself and the problem, it, it, it's hard to know. Um, but you know, on the ground, you talk to people, and a lot of this is is going to be a regional and local response. And I think you're looking at regional and state governments and they're dealing with it pretty well so far, seems to be the consensus, whether it's in New England or in Washington state. There's only so many things the federal government can do. Um, they've allocated now $8 billion to kind of uh, address this problem. Um, so this is very Trumpian leadership style. 
Um, it's not orthodox. Um, it's not conventional. Uh, he doesn't meet with people who he thinks he can, if he feels it's unnecessary, it's not useful to him. Um, but this is not going to be uh, standard practice management of a crisis. This is going to be a uniquely Donald Trump way of dealing with this. And there are lots of scientists based in the US who are working on a vaccine or attempting to work on a vaccine and try and get something out as, as quickly as they can, safely, of course. Is there a feeling that the US has a role as a, as a, as a world leader in, in finding a vaccine and, and finally tackling coronavirus? Well, I think there's a firm called Gilead, which is an American firm that is is thought to be closest to this. Um, absolutely, you know, America has the most sophisticated um, you know, medical research in the world, most sophisticated uh, biomedical research. So, uh, yes, if, if a solution is going to come, it's probably going to come from the centers of Boston or, you know, Silicon Valley, San Diego, these places, Texas, places where medical research is, is the most advanced you'll find anywhere. And I think those people are working frenziedly. Not only is it necessary from a public health standpoint, someone's going to make a lot of money if they come up with an answer to this. Next. There were plenty of photographers to greet Harry and Meghan at Mansion House last night. One of them got a shot that could define the couple in their post-royal era. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Well, that's how to do a comeback. Harry and Meghan captured on camera at a charity event in London. It's pouring down, the droplets sparkling behind them in the lights as a beaming Harry holds an umbrella above a smiling Meghan. You've all seen it. It was trending on social media last night. The Evening Standard's insider editor, Lucy Pavia, is with me now. Lucy, how can one image have such an impact? I mean, first of all, full credit to the photographer, Samir Hussein. I mean, what a shot. As you say, the rain was sparking like diamonds around them. I mean, they say in the media, um, pictures make you stop and words make you stay. Um, that picture made us all stop. I literally stopped. I saw it coming up on my screen on Twitter and I can't remember who who'd shared it and they said something like just look at this picture and you have to just look at the picture of all the controversies around Harry and Meghan this one image of the smiling couple just enjoying themselves it almost seemed to just wash all that away didn't it yes and you know what however you feel about Harry and Meghan and and as we know there are plenty of opinions washing around the internet you can't deny the sort of dazzle aspect that the Sussexes have um, more than any other royal couple, really. And I thought that their body language um, was very us against the world. I thought that eye contact with each other under the umbrella. They love to share an umbrella. Have you noticed that? They did <laughs> that in Australia. Yes. There's a picture of Megan holding an umbrella over Harry, isn't there? Yes, yes. And then one of them strolling on the beach and then later they're sort of cuddling under the umbrella. And obviously there's lots of metaphors you can use about, you know, the rain being the sort of public opinion that they're sort of um, protected against under this this shared umbrella of their marriage. But I, I think that sort of 
sense of a united front. I mean, this is a couple who are walking in, in lockstep, both literally and figuratively. There's something quite Hollywood about them and the way they use things, which I guess, given Megan's actress background... Yeah, and, and I, I, I hate to play the comparison game, but William and Kate, when they're out in public together, they don't hold hands. You'll probably notice that they don't do that if you look at pictures of them together. Harry and Meghan are far more sort of like a Hollywood couple in that respect, that they, they're really big on the PDAs. I don't know whether you remember their first Christmas card that they released after their wedding. It was them on their wedding day with their backs to the camera um, watching a firework display in black and white. I think it's sort of, it's intimate, but it's, it distances the viewer slightly. So it says, you know, we're letting you into this private moment, but you're not going to come between us. We have a private union that's completely in step with each other. You'll find loads of coverage and photos of Harry, Meghan and all the royals on the Evening Standard's Insider pages. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash insider. Nah. This weekend sees International Women's Day. Here's Evening Standard comment editor Susanna Butler. Happy International Women's Day. It's not actually till Sunday, but we're stretching out the celebrations to make them last all week because women are thrifty. The variety of events on offer show that feminism is a broad movement. There's a bike ride through London, a celebration of Toni Morrison, lots of discussions of equal pay, and of course novelty items on sale, including a cocktail called Consensual Sex on the Beach. But shouldn't this day be about more than that? Or should every day be International Women's Day? I'm joined by Features Editor Phoebe Luckhurst. Phoebe, happy International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day to you too. Um, what does this day mean to you? Does it still have a point? Uh, what does it mean to me? I think it's very easy to dismiss it as quite gimmicky. I mean, the list of things you just sort of reeled off, like consensual sex on the beach and free cakes and bike rides. I mean, it, you know, that all sounds a bit silly. So I think on one level, it doesn't mean an awful lot. But then also, if you look at it from another angle and you think about the idea of raising awareness of women's issues, such as equal pay, such as not abusing female politicians, such as period poverty, then you can look at it from a slightly different angle and think that, you know, yeah, the silly cakes, etc., are a distraction, but think it, it does make you think about real issues. So the cakes have a message. The cakes have a message somewhere, <laughs> buried deep somewhere. And what are some of those issues around the world? I mean, I do think, again, equal pay, perhaps that's a sort of slightly privileged Western position to take, but equal pay, we still are very far away from. And also equal rights in workplaces, uh, women's ability just to go to work and not be sexually harassed. I mean, we've just had the, you know, the Harvey Weinstein case, and I think that has really emphasised, again, that there are difficult working conditions for women across the world, and one of them might be that you're sort of targeted by a sex attacker, <laughs> and one of them might be that you have to work long hours and aren't paid for them. So I think that, again, if it raises awareness of issues like that, then it's doing some good in the world. And it's all interlinked. It's totally well. all interlinked. Yeah, you know, you look at period poverty is in some ways linked to equal pay. You know, it's like a, it's a huge kind of spectrum of issues across, you know, countries. And, and yeah, that all, does all link together. And I suppose with the Weinstein trial, was there a sense that while it was a historic moment it highlighted the fact that we there's a lot we have to keep pushing for. Is there a sense that it's this is just the start? I think totally. I think that he... Keep up momentum. Keep up momentum, exactly. You know, it's, it's a brilliant thing that he was convicted of some of the offences. There are still trials to come and it was a sort of watershed moment, but I think what it did was highlight how much still needs to be done for women in workplaces, you know, other aggressors. You know, there'll be other cases of these in workplaces all over the world. So I think that 
what it what it's the signal it sent was like god there's so much more we need to do not this fight is won what do the men in your life think of international women's day I'm not totally convinced any of them know it's happening <laughs> <laughs> you know again i'm sure they would roll their eyes probably rightly at things like cocktails and bike rides and cakes etc but i would like to think that none of the men i spend any time with would disagree that we need to have equal pay and that's the leader please do subscribe rate and share whatever you listen to podcasts it really does make a big difference and we like hearing from you too use the hashtag the leader podcast we're back on monday at four 